So, uh, talking about compartment sy syndrome and rhabdomyolysis today. So there's some overlap in these, but I'm going to pretty much uh, separate the two topics. Uh, just generally speaking, uh, you know, compartment syndrome uh, uh, generally will cause the rhabdomyolysis, so you have to be generally well aware of that. And, but um, um, not all rhabdomyolysis is compartment syndrome and vice versa. So starting off with compartment syndrome, pretty much, uh, as everybody knows, this is a, just an increase in pressure in a compartment. And, you know, what is a compartment? Compartment uh, is a um, um, place where muscles are and blood flows and nerves lie, and they're covered by fascia, and that's the, the problem. The fascia is a tight constrict constriction of tissue, and uh, there's not much room for swelling, so you get some trauma in there, uh, or ischemia, or some uh, process that leads to an increase in uh, pressure, and then you get down to the slippery slope of uh, uh, more pressure causes more uh, and vice versa, and you end up with a, with a big problem. So I'm looking at the pressures and compartments. What's normal is usually zero. Uh, you, if you measure normal compartment, anything considered normal. You're going to see capillary blood flow decrease from the pressure to 20. Nerve muscles are compromised at 30 and above. By the time you get distal pulse uh, um, gone, you're, you're, uh, you don't really need to be measuring pressure diagnosis. So causes, uh, predominantly fractures is the number one cause of compartment syndrome, especially the tibial area forearm fractures. Um, also in, uh, um, you know, in ischemia, reperfusion injuries, causing compartment syndrome, uh, hemorrhage itself uh, from trauma, bleeding into a muscle or, or around a muscle, um, vascular punctures, which can be hydrogenic or, uh, um, or not. Um, constrictive casts, one thing we see in the ER all the time, people come with that tight cast and they have some, some extra pain that cast off for, uh, um, adjustment. And, uh, um, and then just soft tissue itself, like uh, um, prolonged crushes and, and burns, which you guys are well aware of doing your burn rotation. So in looking at you know, the compartments, it's, it gets kind of tricky and I, I try to get some really good images and, and surprisingly, you know, after spending like two hours surfing the web, it's really hard to find uh, some good images on this, uh, but I will have I have some pictures to show you. Uh, in the upper arm, uh, there's two compartments: the biceps uh, lie in one, and the triceps lie in the other, and they're divided into anterior and posterior. Very rare place to get a compartment syndrome. The most common place in the upper arm is in the uh, forearm, and, and that is divided into the uh, volar and dorsal aspect, and, and it's separated by the uh, interosseous membrane. And I have a nice picture of that. And then actually the hand has, has uh, four different, different compartments. So um, uh, injuries to the hand, which we, we see, have to be, uh, you know, think of compartment syndrome too there. So here's a nice picture of the forearm. So you see the interosseous membrane, and you see the flexor um, um, muscles designated by the F, and the extensor ones designated by E, and the radius and the other. And the, those are the two compartments that separate there. So in the lower leg, you actually have compartments in your gluteal area, uh, which is important. So keeping our lectures on a timely basis, so you don't develop compartment syndrome of the gluteal area. Um, there's, there's, there's three. Um, and then in, in the thigh, and not too common you get a compartment syndrome again in, in, the, in the buttocks. But in, in the thighs, again, not very common, but there are three compartments, anterior, medial, and posterior. The most common place is in the lower leg, and that's predominantly due to tibial fractures. We're going to uh, make up by far the, the most uh, amount of compartments we're going to see. 
and I have a, a nice picture to show you the, those four compartments. And then uh, the foot too uh, um, uh, has four compartments just like the hand. Some discrepancy uh, in past experience with orthopedics once about a possible compartment syndrome of the foot. And some people believe it really can't exist um, in my experience. So here is the uh, um, compartment syndrome, or compartments of the uh, lower leg. So, where's the mouse here? So you have your anterior compartment up here, uh, lateral compartment, superficial posterior, and superficial deep. And so uh, three of them are, you know, are sort of palpable, and one of them is you know, sort of deep that you're probably not going to locate. And the compartment syndrome, Shown by the lower picture, shows kind of compartment syndrome in all four compartments, and you can see uh, represented by the swelling and the arrows where the is going. So, how do you diagnose this? This is uh, this is sometimes tricky. So, the classic uh, description is pain that is disproportionate to the uh, uh, physical findings. It's usually described as deep burning, and unrelenting, and, and sometimes it's hard to localize. One of the uh, techniques you can do to uh, figure this out is to do a passive stretch of the muscle groups and see if that causes uh, severe pain, like sort of like a Holman sign, and uh, looking for paresthesias. Unreliable is looking at skin color, temperature, refill, distal pulses. pulses. That's uh, um, um, not the only way to diagnose this. And uh, again, if you get pallor and if you get losses, pulses, it's a latent ominous sign. So when you, uh, you're, you're concerned about some of the, say you have like two of these four findings and you're concerned about Parkinson's um, syndrome, what would you like to do? Measure the pressures? That's correct. So this algorithm is actually developed by Dr. Uh, Amendola here. It's in the orthopedic textbooks that I got out of. And uh, so if you suspect Parkinson's syndrome and you're really sure of it, you're done. You go right to fasciotomy. But if you're not sure, you're sort of, you know, got this guy with a lot of leg pain, it could be Parkinson's syndrome, you're not really sure may have some trauma, but not enough that you would think would cause Parkinson syndrome, or maybe he has a crush injury, and, and it's certainly a possibility, but uh, you know, it's early or, or you're not really sure. So what you want to do is you want to measure the, the pressure. And I have a picture of one of a typical measuring device. And, and what, they, some, what some people rec you know, recommend is they have this delta P. That's kind of using some like pressure differences and stuff, but uh, pretty much you're measuring the, the pressure of the, which shows on the uh, you're, you're pretty much your, like your striker device. And so when you get an elevated pressure greater than 30, you're pretty much going to a fasciotomy. So here's a, one of the old school type measurements. I think these now come in digital form. Ken, you got some experience with these things, right? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you, you have to like know how to zero the, the machine. How about Greg? Do you have some with this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the perfect, that's one of the key points of this lecture that making another slide or two is, you know, if you think it, you should measure it. You know, if, it, um, um, if you can't really find the, the cause, because it, it, you know, these findings can be subtle and there's great experience. Uh, it's, uh, it can be a tough diagnosis to make sometimes. So treatment is a complete fasciotomy, uh, prepare for surgery. So, you know, get your orthopedic consultant or your general surgeon, depending on, you know, what institution you're working at, who's going to be doing this. The problem is the thing the, um, um, the treatment for, for crater in 12 hours, then you're looking at rever irreversible muscle and nerve damage. Uh, do not elevate the affected part. Maybe one point that would help, it actually hurts. You're reducing arterial blood flow and venous return by doing that.
So, you know, in stachyotomies, you know, the, I, I ask these questions, are they, are they best left up to an surgeon? Well, you know, I think the answer is yes, of, of course. So, but what happens if you're in a pickle, and you're in a snowstorm somewhere, and, uh, or in the military, or uh, you're at a, someone that has like a, a really devastating injury? Uh, well, maybe, you know, you're going to do this urgently. And it's not, you know, unheard of where we will go ahead and grab that um, Roberts and Hedges and look up how to do a procedure. And, uh, um, uh, you know, you have to do what you have to do. And so it uh, may come across this, as I almost did once, which I'll show you a case of. So, uh, uh, and this was actually the hardest thing to do, was find pictures of where to draw the lines for fasciotomy. Maybe, you know, I wasn't looking at the right resources, but, uh, you know, looking at the lower leg, these were pretty e easy to find. You make it um, incision both on the medial and lateral sides, and, you know, it's a pretty deep incision. Uh, you have to be careful not to touch the saphenous uh, nerve or vein when you go on the uh, uh, medial side. But, uh, uh, you know, you're looking for a very generous incision for a release. And there's a picture of a hand one here. Have you guys ever done, Ken, Greg? Burn unit. So this is the case I had in Texas, so I'm kind of curious what you, how you guys would handle this. So I'm working out uh, in Texas, uh, in northeast corner of Dallas County, about 40 minutes by ambulance to hospital, five minutes by helicopter. And you got a 16-year-old high school student who's like, she's a female, she's uh, from a very, very wealthy community, and her arm is uh, very very well-dressed family, everything, you know, and it's like it's a nightmare. Her arm, she comes in by EMS, her arm is stuck in a pull filter for 45 minutes. And everyone's kind of hysterical. She arrives in the emergency room. What do you want to do? Yeah, so, that's, so on exam, this, her arm was about the size of my wrist on her left arm. Her right arm was the size of my, like, lower leg, like this big. I mean, maybe this big. It was, it was so impressive, and it was all this, you know, bruised up, crush. The entire arm was like just a whole big crush injury. And, and she would just held it like this, and if you just moved like this, she just screamed like bloody murder. And so, I mean, the diagnosis made. And so uh, uh, I called our general surgeon on call, and, and we had a pretty good, reliable general surgery coverage there, except for one or two days a month where this um, guy that was uh, close to retiring was taking that day. And he said, I haven't done a fasciotomy in 30 years. And he, I can do that. And he goes, you can do it just as well as me. Just open the book. And thought about it. And then I just looked at the, the, the phone and I, uh, I was just like, um, and she had no pulses too, by the way. Um, so uh, I called Children's Hospital and I explained this and they said, have the general surgical team right there ready to go. And the helicopter came. The helicopters, just like in Iowa, there's groups or helicopters, and they want your business. And uh, if you called from our hospital, they were usually there in a couple of minutes because we had a high rate of that had insurance. So I'll say it, but it, that's true. Uh, and so the helicopter came within five minutes. The patient, the children's, you know, just a ten-minute ride uh, or ride to the hospital, and uh, she had a crash out of me. But that was that was a scary case. I don't know what I would have done if I would have been out in like northern Minnesota or. Uh, you know, bail in a storm. Right, so you say so looking at a fracture, I think is the often quoted time for, for 12 hours. Now here, this is a severe crush injury. I don't think you have time on your side. 
and then she's also going to get the reperfusion injury too. Right, this she needed, that was my findings were so significant. It was her entire arm with just one big swollen purple uh, bruised uh, uh, ugly appearing arm. Right, right. But she needed it done, and 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 I mean, I mean, everyone knows such a stress level in the ER, and she came in, and and uh, um, you know, but you work in those communities, you, you you see these cases once in a great while, you know. But we see them all, you know, bad things all the time here, but in those smaller hospitals, don't see this stuff every day. All right, so let's keep. I didn't know. I was actually pretty close to the end before I came here. So it was in this June when the pools started back opening back up out there. So, so some key, compete, key points about compartment syndromes. So you know, the first one's pretty obvious. Um, mostly the fractures, especially the tibia is the most common place. Remember the five P's, but they're, you don't have to have all of them. You can, you can have one or two or the three. You can still have the diagnosis, as Greg pointed out, delaying diagnosis. Uh, tissue necrosis and Volkman's ischemic contracture are your big complications, and uh, uh, you know treatment is emergent, emergent decompression. So what's this? So this is Volkman's ischemic contracture. So the, the child on the right was uh, from a website from uh, um, a. Um, it sounded like a physician that was doing missionary work, and he took all these pictures of, him. and so he's got. Uh, you can see the. Uh, this same deformity over here, if you look closely. Actually, do a release of that and try to improve that, but you know it's uh, it's often uh, difficult. Um, okay, moving on. Rhabdomyolysis. So there's many different causes of rhabdomyolysis, and uh, um, from hereditary illnesses uh, to uh, acquired is from like drugs and infections, heat stroke, uh, alcohol, um, uh, cocaine. So it's important to know that there's a, you have to keep a wide uh, array of causes for this. So it should, it's, it's one of those cases, uh, one of those diagnoses should always be in your differential when you enter a room. Could this patient have rhabdo? I mean, it's not like you need to order a CK in everybody, but there's so many different causes, you have to you know, always have your guard up for, for this thing. So what is rhabdo? Well, rhabdo has some sort of preceding event uh, that causes ATP depletion. And typically we're going to have a sort of a drug or uh, um, alcohol compression causing hypoxia. We may have some genetic with some enzyme deficiencies, possibly even like ATP depletion. So what happens is your, your muscles don't function well, your exchange pumps get, get all um, dysfunctional, extra cal your calcium binds to uh, muscle that's being broken down, so you get uh, transient hypokalemia, and you get this muscle dysfunction that results in calcium and phosphorus being, being released, myoglobin, and CK and urate. So the end result is you can have renal tubular obstruction, which is uh, one of the feared complications of rhabdo. So in looking at like the different drugs, I mean, you pull up drugs that cause rhabdo, you look at tintinale, you look anywhere, I mean, the list is a mile long. So, uh, you know, um, if you're having someone come in with a lot of different myodules and muscles complaints, a lot of different drugs, um, you're pretty much going to be ordering a CK because you're, you're pretty well sure that someone that's on like 10 different drugs, you're going to find one off this list. I mean, there's, it's such a common thing. 
especially you know, with these cholesterol-lowering agents. Uh, the, the statins especially, it's such a common drug. And, and you look at your antibiotics, Bactrim is on here. Um, uh, you know, some very common things and some rare things too. And so, you know, the uh, uh, insurance companies are really in tune to this the, uh, problem. So if you look at the statins and, and, and who's on these things, you know, there, there is a uh, fairly significant incident race, rate uh, of statins, and so follow pretty closely because, uh, um, um, you know, we're, we don't really want to do harm in preserving these drugs. We want to, you know, do some but complications of, uh, of missing are bad. What is rhabdo? Well, I always thought it's like the flu. You know, it's acute onset. You got myalgia, stiffness, weakness, may have low-grade fever, may have dark urine. I mean, we all have dark urine when we have the flu. But, you know, rhabdo and the flu, they actually don't sound too different. And you may, ha may have systemic signs, or, or you may have none. Nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, tachycardia. And so, so again, it's often sometimes difficult to, to come up with. So the definition of rhabdo in, in your Cincinnati textbook, which is important because you may see it on a, uh, your written boards at some point, CK is five times the upper limit of normal. So you see that, you have rhabdo. So here, I think our upper limit of normal is 150. So if you're 750 or higher, it's rhabdo. Um, you have to realize that CK peaks 24 to 72 hours. And so uh, if you have some uh, alcoholic patient that comes in the emergency room, was found down, and his rhabdo is like yeah, 600, well, you have to realize that it could go higher. And so uh, you know, he may be criteria for rhabdomyolysis. Early on, 25%. Uh, uh, early on, you'll see myoglobinuria, but, but by the time this is made, it's, it's actually not present in about 25%. So don't, do not use that as a um, diagnosis for rhabdo. If you see it, it's diagnostic. But if you don't have it, it doesn't, doesn't rule it out. So what, what do you want to do if you have a case of rhabdo? Well, it's pretty much uh, you know, um, uh, managing the electrolytes and fluids. So you're going to order a bunch of labs, especially your electrolytes and also a calcium and a phosphorus. Typically, calcium levels will blow initially and go high later as the disease pro progresses, but most of the time you do not need treatment. Same for phosphorus. The big thing is the potassium, to kind of follow the potassium and monitor for acute failure. Very bad cases of rhabdo actually go into DIC. The baseline set of coags is important. And your complications, like renal failure, uh, and uh, um, I saw that you wouldn't want to give LR in compartment syndrome or rhabdo, and I'll be honest, I can't remember which which one it was. I have to up an email you got back. You can do a very aggressive hydration. People, uh, author Tintinelli uh, suggests uh, 2.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour of IV fluids. Fluids do you want to give? Hmm? Okay. Who votes for normal saline? Yeah. So I think it is probably Rabdo. What about uh, D5 with 3 amps of D5 in, uh, in uh, or 3 amps of carbon D5 water, sorry. Who wants to do that? Dave wants to do both? <laughs> well, we had a case of this a uh, uh, um, couple weeks ago, someone with McArdle's disease, which is some sort of glucogen uh, storage is the this, this was so easy. This kid says, comes in and he's like, oh, rhabdo, I, I have this problem and I've had it like probably 100 times in my life and about 10 times I have to be hospitalized and I know I have to be hospitalized and that's why I'm here because if, if I've had it for two days and I haven't peed in 16 hours. So 
we, we had some time in Blue Pod. It was like the first case of the day. And so we did a little evidence-based medicine search. And actually, when I trained, it was, it was always alkalinize the urine and give D5W um, with amps of bicarb. And in the literature we found, it said there was like sort of plus minus. And, uh, um, but for bad cases, I still would. And, that's, um, and this guy had a pretty bad case. So. But initially, you want to just you know, get some early hydration with normal saline. And then you, know, you could add in some D5 um, combination to uh, alkalinize the urine. Um, how about diuretics or dialysis? Yeah, uh, it's certainly a possibility for both, but usually by, by the time uh, those to the patient are pretty well, probably outside the ER. But if, uh, if uh, you know, certainly their creatinine is like seven and they're coming in, is something to consider in, in order with that potassium being really high. So, um, so in addition, you, you would, uh, for really bad cases, you would not put a Foley to monitor your urine. Uh, or uh, and put people on a cardiac monitor, and potassium is again the big issue. So clinical pearls and rhabdo, early recognition important. Signs and symptoms, uh, you know, are often sound like the flu. Um, you, you know, you may have an isolated leg injury with rhabdo, but like in drug-induced rhabdo, it can be difficult to, to know. Diagnose, and so early high, uh, IV hydration is really important in the, the stay of treatment. Um, is it the same other thing? I guess that's it.